For today's scripture reading, please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 14, or you can follow along on page 8 of your bulletins. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard did not combine it with faith. Now we who have believed enter that rest just as God has said, so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world, for somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words, and on the seventh day God rested from all his work. And again in the passage above he says, they shall never enter my rest. It still remains that some will enter that rest, and those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. Therefore, God, God set again a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through David, as was said before, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. This is the word of our Lord. <clears throat> the book of Hebrews was written <clears throat> to first century Christians who are experiencing suffering and trouble to the point where they're giving up. You know, when you see somebody who's hurting, when you see somebody, a loved one, who's suffering a lot and they're really weary, the one thing that we tend to hope for for them is what? We want them to rest. And that's really what's going on here. You have this author who knows that the people that he loves are suffering, and so he's, his hope for them is to rest, to rest in faith. And that word rest is mentioned at least eight times in the verses that we read just now together. Um, he's talking about rest for the soul, soulful rest. So we're going to see what this passage says about rest. One, <clears throat> why we need it. Two, what is it? Three, how do you get it? Why do we need it? What it is? How do you get it? First, we're going to talk about why do you need this kind of rest? Verse 3 the author here in verse 3, he's referencing Psalm 95. And uh, he's looking back to a time, it's actually printed in your, uh, in your call to worship. He's looking back to a time in the wilderness when the Israelites were rescued from Egypt. They were in the desert and they turned from God. They turned away from him because they were untrusting. They were distrustful. They were ungrateful. And God, he says, so I swore on oath in my anger, they will never 
enter my rest. That's what he says. One of the worst curses you can ever endure in your life is a restless life. This is Philadelphia. It's one of the largest, most productive cities in the country. And we're miserable because of our relationship to our work. Our relationship to our work, completely out of whack. Because we think that the meaning of rest is to stop working, to increase the number of vacations, have more vacations in our lives. And that's why we're so tired. We're still very tired. But the ancients, we're talking about the Old Testament Hebrews, the Jews, even the Puritans, they knew a lot better. They knew that work can be abused, and they knew that our work can abuse us. And, and so if you don't rest, you know, the ancients knew that it's, it's that endless need to strive, that endless need to achieve and to control things in our lives. It's going to ruin our soul. If you let that go in your life, it's going to ruin your soul. It's going to ruin your life because if you don't put a handle on that, it's going to ruin your family, your finances, your character, your health. Your life just completely implodes. So in a society, this is a society that encourages overworking. And, and a society that encourages overworking is as corrosive then as a society that encourages stealing, that encourages adultery, that encourages killing. Overwork, it could be just as brutal, just as corrosive as a society that encourages evil. And it's getting worse. It's getting worse in our context today. I'm going to give you several reasons why. One, it's because <clears throat> of the ebb and flow of our economy today. Our economy ebbs and flows. Our jobs are insecure. Robert Reich, he's a former labor secretary under President Clinton during his first term. And uh, in his uh, seminal book, piece of work, he wrote a book called The Future of Success. He basically says, basically what he says is that the structure of our labor force tomorrow, not just today, but tomorrow, is going to be more dynamic, more dynamic than our traditional ways of viewing employment. And, and what that means is that essentially our relationship with our employers are eroding. And their relationship with us, it's eroding. That's one of the reasons why our, our jobs are insecure. Number two, the, basically you don't have job security because your relationship to your employer is eroding. There's no such thing as loyalty anymore on either side. And as a result, jobs, you're just another person that can be replaced by another person. Number two, the cost of living is increasing. Crazily, it's increasing. And so the cost of goods sold increasing as well. And so there's this greater pressure today to produce than any other time in our history. Number three, <clears throat> technology. Most of you guys understand the concept of working from home. Technology enables us to work anywhere. And so as a result, our work-life balance is completely out of whack. Fourth reason is our culture. David Brooks who actually is from the, from the Philadelphia area. He's from Wayne. David Brooks is an NPR correspondent. He wrote a book called Bobos in Paradise. And basically he says this there, that traditional societies found their meaning through their families. Uh, they found status through families, uh, the pedigree that they were born into. But today we find meaning in what? Our work, what we do, what we've accomplished, our careers, our professions. Lastly, we have our hearts. Before sin ever came into the world, you look at Genesis chapter 2, first book in the Bible, Genesis chapter 2. Before sin ever even entered into the world, there was work. That means man in paradise, man in his complete state, he had a job. He was ruling, he had a job. 
But because of sin, now everything that was brought in before sin ever even entered the world became broken. And so as a result, our work is broken. Our relationship to work is broken. We're overworking like crazy. And there's this deep need now more than ever for rest of the soul. There's never been a more work-obsessed culture than ours. No greater culture in history that's more work-obsessed. And it's not just about work. It's not just about your, your conventional way of viewing your jobs. We are neurotic about everything, and as a result, we're restless every, about everything. Look at the phenomena of overparenting today. <clears throat> if you look at the way your parents treat uh, their children regarding sports, regarding the arts, music, getting into the right schools, the way we bring children to specialists at the slightest hint, the slightest delay in speech, slightest uh, decrease or, or being falling behind in our skills development, we are desperate to scramble for advantages in our culture today. It's all closely rela- uh, linked to overwork. And it's got a grip on our souls, a huge grip on our souls, because now we're using our children as a means for worth, just like we use our work as a means for worth. Let's go another step, <clears throat> in or out. If you, look about, if you think about uh, Facebook and Instagram, our social media channels today, maintaining your media presence uh, is uh, tremendously, we're overworking to maintain a certain presence. Simon Sinek, he's the author of Leaders Eat Last, in a recorded interview, he's giving lots of airtime these days, This is what he says about our social media presence and our activity. It's why we count the likes. Because we know when you get it, you get a hit of dopamine. Research has proven this, by the way, right? Uh, When you get these likes, you get a hit of dopamine, which feels good. It's why we like it. It's why we keep going back to it. Dopamine is the exact same chemical that makes us feel good when we smoke, when we drink, when we gamble. In other words, it's highly, highly addictive. We have age restrictions on smoking, gambling, and alcohol, and we have no age restrictions on social media or cell phones. You have an entire generation that has access to an addictive, numbing chemical called dopamine through social media and cell phones as they're going through the high stress of adolescence. That's what he says. Basically, what we're saying here, there are many, many channels, more channels than ever in our lives, where we're constantly overworking. And we're overworking because of this desperate need to strive, to achieve, to control, for approval, even through social media channels. And we're addicted to it. We can't stop. It's why you can't go through an entire meal these days without looking at your cell phone. We're addicted to this, and we're in trouble. There's never been a society where there's a greater, deeper restlessness and weariness. That's why we need it. Now, what is it? What is this rest that the author is talking about? The author is using the word rest in three different ways in this text. They're all related. They're interrelated. But he uses it uh, differently in each section of this passage. So we need to unpack the use of the word by looking at the different ways that the word rest is being used. First, we're talking about physical rest. Verse 3. So I declared on on earth in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. That's God's warning to the Israelites those ancient Israelites. Basically what he's saying is if you keep rebellion, if you keep being disobedient, you're never going to enter the land that was promised to you. This is God talking to the ancient Israelites. After they were rescued out of Egypt, they crossed the Red Sea. They were headed towards Canaan, which was their resting place. Basically Canaan was given to these people as a place of rest. 
And it represents physical rest, social rest, because the laws were designed to bring social order and justice. It was going to be a place where people can rest culturally, where they can expand in their cultural views and not have to worry about another culture imposing their views on them. Now, if you think about this, if you remember this, the Israelites, they were slaves. They were rescued from Egypt. They were wandering in the desert. In Egypt, they were working themselves to the ground. You know what a slave is? A slave is somebody who's going to work and they get nothing in return, right? And you never stop working because you are at the beck and call of the people who have enslaved you. These Israelites in Egypt, they were working to the ground, which is why when God gave them the Ten Commandments, he reminds them, In Deuteronomy, he says, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out. Then he says, therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Basically, what God's saying is this. When you rest, you're saying, I'm free. I've been rescued. And as a result, anyone who's overworking is a slave. That's what he's saying. When you rest, you're putting your work down. You're saying, I'm not a slave to the materialistic uh, society that I live in. I'm not a slave to the cultural standards that are being imposed on me. I'm not a slave to my demands, my own demands to, to seek an identity. My identity is in God, and he has rescued me. And that's why we rest. The second type of rest is more of a an internal thing. It's an existential thing. Verses 3 to 5, the author says, and yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. And on the seventh day, God rested. When you go back to the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, what do you see? Here's God. His hands are in the dirt. He's creating the world. He's working. And, and later on, we're told that God himself rested from his work. Now, growing up, you got to ask the question, why does God need to rest if he never gets tired? In the Psalms, it says God never slumbers. He never sleeps. So why does he need to rest? And it's because the word rest there means something completely different. What does it mean? In Genesis chapter 1, every day, God creates something. God creates, God creates the heavens and the earth. The end of the first day, he says, let there be light. And so there was light. And he sees everything, and what? And it was good. The second day, there's water. And after the second day, he looks at everything he's created, and it was good. And every day goes by, he's creating something. He's creating the world. And after each day, he looks back on what he's created, and he says, it was good. In fact, you get to the end of Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. God looks at everything that he's created. And what does he say? It's the benediction. It was very good. By the seventh day, he rests. It's finished. The work is done. He's able to rest. He blesses that day. He makes it holy. He sets it apart for himself. It's an opportunity for him to look at everything he's created, everything he's done, and be able to say, yes, this is very, very good. That's the meaning of the Sabbath. That's the Sabbath, to be able to look at your own work, what you've created. We're all created to create. We're all created to rule. And so the Sabbath is designed not only for us to get physical rest, but for us to be able to look at our work, 
to recount a work and say, yes, I'm satisfied with the work that I've done. It's the only way you're ever going to be able to stop. The only way you're ever going to be able to stop is to be satisfied with what you've done. No matter what you do, no matter how you're compensated, now this is totally the opposite of Western thinking, right? Because in Western thinking, our resumes are only about what? What you've done, what you've accomplished, where you've been, how you're compensated. Now, if you think about the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, before he became a Christian, the Apostle Paul was a Pharisee. That means he was brilliantly educated. He was wealthy. He had a tremendous reputation. He was a good person. He was a moral person, but he was angry. He was incredibly angry and resentful. Why? It's because his life was all about doing. And he became so angry and so dissatisfied. It's an amazing thing. When you look at the end of his life, Philippians chapter 4, that's pretty much he's nearing the end of his life. At the tail end of that uh, passage, he says what? I've learned what it means to be content. I've learned contentment. Paul says he's content beyond all circumstances. I can do all things in Christ, he says. Our sin breaks that. Our sin kills that. Because your sin places your mind always on your work, what you have left to do, what you didn't accomplish, how much further other people are going, how much further ahead other people are. Your sin... Our sin places our minds always on our work, and that's why we're angry. That's why we're jealous. God was able to put the hammer and nails down. He was able to put his work down. Why? Because he was satisfied with his work. It's not the, the work that didn't define him. The work didn't make him what he was, who he was. And so he was not angry. He wasn't dissatisfied. He wasn't restless. There's no amount of vacation in your life that you can take to cure the restlessness of the soul. In other words, there's a physical rest, right? So you don't feel like a slave. You can put the hammer and nails down so you don't feel like a slave. But then there's this soulful rest that comes from a deep satisfaction of who you are, what you've done. And this is the only kind of rest that enables you to walk away from your work. Because it's the end of striving. It's the end of having to prove yourself. Because you're not worried about whether or not you're going to be acceptable enough. Now, you could have grown up in the church. But if you haven't experienced this soulful kind of rest, that means you could be addicted to your work. And you're definitely addicted to you proving yourself through your good works. That's for sure. That's for sure. You're still a slave. And if you haven't dealt with it, it's going to wear you out. And that's the cause of our bitterness. And that's the cause of our anger. And that's the cause of our jealousy and our discontent with ourselves. That's what it is. We're going to wear ourselves out externally because you can't put the hammer and nail down. Internally because you're never going to be satisfied with who you are, what place you are right now. And you're going to die. You're going to to wear yourselves out externally and internally. You're going to die a slave. That's the second kind of rest. Now, there's a third kind of rest here that he talks about because the author doesn't just talk about the present. He looks ahead to the eternal. Verse 8, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken about later about another day. Therefore, let's make every effort to enter into it. He says, you know, you have it. 
If you believe, if you are a Christian, you already entered this rest, but you haven't tasted it in full. You have a glimpse of the rest. You can experience it in your soul, but one day you will have it even fuller, more complete when your body, when your person, when your soul has been made new. Then you will do exactly what you've been designed to do. You will live exactly as you've been designed to live. Your body will function exactly as it's been designed to function. Right now, we're broken bodies. No matter how wealthy you are, no matter how attractive you are, we all get sick, and that's just the beginning. We do not function the way we've been designed to function, but one day you will enter into that rest. The author is basically saying Joshua got the Israelites into Canaan. That's physical rest. There is social order for a time. In a way, there was a form of social justice, but it wasn't the end of the world. That wasn't it. What he's saying is that there is still a fuller, more complete rest that is eternal that we're going to be ushered into. Notice, verse 6 to 11, all about rest. Then all of a sudden, you get to verse 12, and he kind of takes a turn. Verse 12 to 13 He says in verse 12, the word of God, the Bible, is like a double-edged sword. He says it's like a sharp sword. It cuts through everything. It's going to cut through you, and it's not going to stop. Once it cuts through you, it's going to go all the way into your motivations, all the way down to the core of your heart. That's what he's saying there, where it's going to reveal your real motivations, the real reasons why you do anything in your life. And he says, that sword is going to cut through, verse 13, it's going to make you feel naked and laid bare before God. And you're going to be defenseless. You're going to be stripped of everything. You're going to be naked. You're going to be uncovered. You're going to be laid bare. That word uncovered is is naked. We're going to unpack this. The author is basically saying, connected to this whole idea of nakedness, rest is connected to this whole idea of being naked before God. We all have to be uncovered in order to rest. That's what he's saying. You're never going to get into this deep, soulful rest unless you come to grips with what's being revealed to you about you by God's word. You have to understand the truth of yourself. Come to grips with the truth. Have it laid bare before God. Have the word of God cut through all the way into your deepest motivations for why you do anything in your life. And it's going to be laid bare before God You're spiritually naked. You're laid bare. And then, in seeing who you are and who God is, once you're able to come to grips with that, by His grace, you'll be satisfied with yourself and about your future. We're going to get into this a little bit deeper. This is going to take us all the way back to Genesis again. In Genesis chapter 2 to 3, you have Adam and Eve, they're in the garden, they're naked. In chapter 2, they're naked. It says that they're naked, but they weren't ashamed. And the reason is because they were at rest with themselves. They were satisfied with themselves, satisfied with who they are, satisfied with their place in the world, satisfied with their relationship with God. There was joy. There was peace. There was deep-rooted satisfaction. And they were naked because they were at rest with their identities. Their lives orbited around their relationship with God. And it was good. But then you get to Genesis chapter 3, and he decided to turn from God. And the minute we decided to reject God's word, the word of God cuts you to the heart, right? The moment we decide to reject that, that thing that reveals who you are, 
that reminds you who you are in front of God, we, turned, we rejected. And once we decided to reject it, we stopped understanding who we were. We lost a sense of who we were. We lost a sense of our security. We lost a sense of our relationship, our intimacy with God. And as a result, we're looking everywhere else for intimacy. We're looking everywhere else for security. We're looking everywhere else for approval. And this deep insecurity set into our hearts because we know that none of us, even though we rejected God as king, we said, I'm going to be my own king. I'm going to live by my own rules. Once the insecurity set in, it's because we knew, deep inside you know, none of us are as adequate and complete as God. None of us are as able as God to do what we do. And so as a result, inherently, it's in our spiritual DNA, there's this deep insecurity. There's this deep unacceptability in our lives. You're born with that. That's spiritual nakedness. You're born with that. And Adam and Eve, they did what anybody here would do when you realize how naked you are. They hid. They hid. They covered themselves up. They used fig leaves to cover themselves up. And these last two verses of Hebrews chapter 4 is saying that unless you recognize that you are spiritually naked, that all your life has been trying to prove yourself as a means to cover over yourself, we're all looking for fig leaves to cover over ourselves because there's this deep shame, there's this deep guilt, there's this deep inadequacy, there's this deep insecurity in our lives, this need, this desperate need to be approved by something. We don't even know who. There's this deep, desperate need. And so what are we doing? We just pat our resumes. That's fig leaves. We're covering ourselves up constantly. We're using our careers, our families, our children, our material possessions, our work. These are the things that we use to cover ourselves up. To prove that we are worthy. To prove ourselves. That's why we need to be the best in everything we do. That's why we worship people who are just absolutely more beautiful than us. That's why we get jealous of other people. You're never going to find the rest that you need. Now, you may not believe in sin. There are people in this room that don't believe in sin, that don't believe in hell, that don't believe in heaven, that may not even believe in God, but deep inside you know your lives. There's a brokenness in our lives. Everyone has it. You don't have to look outside to see how broken the world is. Look at your families. Look at your own person, your own inconsistencies, your own hypocrisies. Every one of us knows we're broken. We know that something's wrong, and we're constantly trying. If that's the inadequacy, we're constantly trying to cover that up. We're constantly working. That's the restlessness. We're constantly working to cover that up using fig leaves, inadequate means. It's why some of us would never imagine dating somebody who's not physically attractive. It's why we're always trying to get to a certain point in our career to prove that we're okay. It's why some of you are just working. You know, it may not be work. It may not even be your looks that you rest on. You just want the perfect family. These are all fig leaves. That's what the Bible says. These are all fig leaves. It's your own way. Everyone's got a way here to cover themselves up. And until you recognize that you are spiritually laid bare and naked before God, you're never going to understand what that restlessness is you're constantly going to be covering yourself up and you're always going to be tired. You're never going to find rest. You can take as many vacations as you want. You're never going to get the rest you need. Now, verse 10 says, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. 
For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. What he's saying here is that just as the Israelites entered physical rest, a greater rest awaits. That you can enter life. There's a life someday that we are headed towards where you're no longer justifying yourself through your work. You're no longer covering yourself up. You're going to be able to rest, the real rest that you need. Otherwise, it's going to kill you because you're never going to be satisfied in life. You're never going to be satisfied with who you are, your place in life. You're never going to be able to put the hammer and nail down as a result. You're never going to be able to say, it is good. You're never going to be able to say, it is finished. You're never going to be able to do that. Because you always have flaws, you always can be better, you're never going to be perfect, you're never going to be enough. You're going to hear that from different people in your life. It's going to just tear you down. It's just going to break you, break you more. You're going to be filled with bitterness and anxiety towards people who project that to you. And this is the worst part. Think about your good works. Think about the good things that you do. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, you know that all the ways that you love other people in your life, it's really about loving yourself. It's really about you. It's really for you most of the time. You have to be able to admit that. I admit that. Most of our loving other people is so that we will get love back in return. It's about you. It's to cover over that deep sense of inadequacy. That's why we're so dissatisfied in our relationships. The difference between us and a Pharisee is that a Pharisee, and think about this, a Pharisee and us, we are always repenting when you do repent. You're repenting of the bad things we do. There's no difference between a Pharisee and us in that way. Right? But the Pharisees that Jesus Christ often rejects, they don't repent of the good things they do. They don't repent of the good, the motivations for why they do those good things. They don't repent of the good things that they do as a way of proving themselves. That's why they're always looking down on other people. That's why they're always anxious. That's why they're always arrogant. That's where the arrogance comes from. That's why they're always angry. Look at the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was a Pharisee. That's why he was so angry. Yes, we should absolutely repent of the bad things we do. We should repent of our sins. But the gospel widens your view of sin to include not just the bad things we do, but the reasons why you do any of the good things you do too. Even now. Even now. You're never going to rest otherwise. It's very important. There are people in this room. It's a new year, right? So there are people in this room who are saying, I'm going to start my life right. I'm going to read the Bible. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to do good things. I'm going to join a community group. I'm going to serve. Then I'm accepted, right? Then I'm going to feel better about myself, right? No. I'm telling you this as a pastor, as you're about. No. That is not going to help you feel better about yourself. It's not. It's going to make you more airy. If that's the way you're going to start your year, if that's the way you feel like you're going to make yourself feel better about yourself, it's only going to make you more arrogant when you succeed, more anxious when you fail, more bitter when you fail. It's going to make you more tired. Because switching between good and bad things in your life to prove yourself, to justify yourself, you know, that's what you're doing. You're switching between good and bad things. Of course, prayer is good. You need to pray. You need to rest on the Word. The Word of God reveals who you are, right? That's what we just said. It cuts to the core of your motivations. You need to see that. You need to be spiritually laid bare. You need the Bible. Bible reading is good, but it's damnable 
if you're using it to earn approval from God. It'll ruin you if that's the reason why you're doing it. Do you get that? Do you understand what I'm saying here? There's a, there's a movie in the 1980s, one of my favorite movies, called Chariots of Fire. There's no sermon about rest that you can talk about unless you talk about this movie. You have two people who are basically juxtaposed against each other. It's a true story. During the Olympics, um, during, a, during an era where in the world that was highly anti-Semitic, you have Harold Abrams, who has a chip on his shoulder because he's Jewish, in this very anti-Semitic period. And he's an excellent runner. He's an Olympic sprinter. He's very, very good. And there's a scene in the movie where he's speaking to his friend Aubrey. And basically what he says to Aubrey, he says, you know, you are brave, you're compassionate, you are kind, you're a content man. That's the secret. Contentment. I'm 24 and I've never known it. I'm forever in pursuit and I don't even know what it is I'm chasing. And when he gets to the race, the day of the race, he looks to his friend Aubrey and he says, you know, in the old days, back in the day, I used to be afraid of losing. Today, I'm almost afraid of winning. And at the race, he says, I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor, four feet wide with ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? He's always anxious, but will I? In other words, what he's saying is, I, all I do is work to justify myself. And that's why we're always anxious. His counterpart is Eric Little, who's a Christian. Eric Little later on went on, after he won the gold medal in the Olympics, he went on to serve as a missionary in China. I believe he died there in China. Eric Little is a Christian. He says, he's taking a walk with his sister. And his sister asks him, why do you run? Why do you do this? And he, he responds, famous, uh, famous uh, quote, he says, God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Notice, one hand, you have somebody who's running to justify his existence. On the other hand, you have somebody who says, I'm not running to earn anything. I delight in my running because I delight in how God has made me. I delight. Which one of these people are you? Which one of these people are you? Are you running to earn the light? Because you're never going to earn it. You can't. This world is set up to trick you into believe that you can. And you're never going to rest. Or are you running because there's this great sense of God's delight and how he's made you, how he's rescued you. The fact that he has saved you must show how much he loves you and treasures you, and you delight in that. And so you can put the hammer and nail down because you are satisfied with your relationship with God. You are satisfied with who you are, where God has placed you. No matter what you do, you're delighting in that and in God. By the way, that's heaven. Heaven is not this place where we're going to sit in this pristine, sterile environment and sing the same ancient hymns 10,000 years, you know, in a, that's, that's not what heaven is. That doesn't feel like heaven. That's not what heaven is. Heaven is a place 
where you are absolutely certain of God's delight in you and it's visible every day of your life and your delight in Him is visible every day. And so whatever, we're going to work in heaven. We're going to work in heaven. We're going to have jobs. There's some jobs that won't exist. There'll probably be no doctors in heaven. There'll be no lawyers in heaven because there's no sin. There's no brokenness. But we're all going to be doing things. We're all going to be making things. And you are going to do exactly, you're going to, every day, you're going to say, I'm doing exactly what I've been built to do. And I love it. And God is honored by it. That's the light. Which one of those people are you? How do you get it? It's the last point. Verse 13 has this graphic word. It's kind of hidden because the, the NIV, the ESV, they don't translate it very well. The author says, everything is uncovered and laid bare. So on one hand, you are spiritually naked. You are uncovered, right? That's what the Word of God does. It reveals how naked you are. And then he says, the Word lays you bare. That Greek word is trachilizo, right? It's where you get the word trachea. Trachea, trachea, it's the word for neck. I'm going to give you the image. The image is you are stripped naked, right? And then your neck is stretched bare. Why? He's giving you the image. Verse 14, right after that, what? Is what? We can come to Jesus as the high priest. What does the high priest do? He strips you, stretches your neck out. The word of God is a sword. He's sacrificing you. He's cutting you. The word of God makes you naked and lays your neck bare. He stretch, the word of God stretches your neck out for the kill. Verse 13 makes sense if you look at it in the context of verse 12 because he's talking about the image of the word of God as a sword, right? That's how you killed animals in the temple. He's saying that word of God, it's going to strike you down. It's going to strip you bare. It's going to cut your neck. It's going to slit your throat. It's going to destroy you. Because the word of God is God's judgment standard. It's a standard that has been set by God. Now think about that. If we're all judged in accordance with that standard. And with you are, none of us walk away here alive. We're all laid bare. Our necks are laid bare before God. If God is just, we all deserve to die. We're all cut off. Every one of us should be torn asunder. But verse 14, it starts the next section of this text. He says, therefore... Since we have a great high priest, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we possess, profess. In other words, you are laid bare on the altar. The Word of God should cut through you. It should destroy you. And yet, we can come to Jesus Christ, the great high priest. We can go to Him, holding firmly to the faith we profess. We can go to Him because there... On that altar, you will find mercy. God is gracious. God is merciful. The high priest, what does he do? His job is to cut. His job is to sacrifice. His job is to cut you off. And yet he says, basically, you're not going to get cut. You're not going to get cut off. You're not going to be sacrificed. Why? Because of Jesus Christ, our great high priest, he was cut. That's why. He became the sacrifice. He was cut off. On the cross, Jesus Christ goes to the cross full of clothes, fully clothed. No, he was stripped completely naked so you could be clothed in the love of God. Jesus Christ was stripped naked. He was laid bare. He was cut. 
He was torn asunder. He was rejected and abandoned, left for dead. Why? Why was, he, why was that happening? So that you could be clothed in the clean white garments of God's righteousness. On the cross, Jesus Christ, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, now I'm working. You see Jesus on the cross, he's groaning. And he's working. And he's slaving. Just to breathe, he had to slave while he was, on, while he was hanging on the cross. And so when he, just uttering the phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was work. But what he's saying there is, I've been forsaken. I have been cut off. I'm experiencing cosmic restlessness. The wrath of God is being poured out on me to the hilt, to the full, he's saying. And there is no one who will rescue me. No one's going to come here and give me rest right now or relief until I lay my life down. He says, I have been stripped naked. Right now, I am naked to bear the full wrath. There was nothing to cover me between me and God's wrath. There was no covering. I'm laid bare. I'm on the cross. I cannot run. There is no escape. There is no rescue. And yet, God, imagine you pouring out that kind of wrath on your own kids. The pain of that. The pain of having that being poured out by your father. He says, I am forgotten. There is no rest for me. That's Jesus. Hell is complete separation from God. A place of eternal work. You know, we think of hell as fire, heat. That's what you're told. But that's because the fire is consuming. You know what you're going to be doing in heaven? I mean, in hell? It's a world of only worry. Some of us are in hell now. You're neurotic. You're constantly worrying. And it makes you distant from God. Jesus Christ said, I am forsaken by God. I am literally suffering the fire of hell. Why? So that we could be ushered in to the eternal rest, the eternal resting place. And Jesus Christ at the end says what? When he died, it is finished. The work is done. It's over. There's no single amount of work that you have to do left to win God's approval because Jesus Christ earned it and was paid. You are paid with God's approval because the transaction has been made. That's what the phrase actually means. It's finished. It's done. The work is complete. The payment has been made. You've earned it. You have it. That's why we can rest in him. When Jesus Christ says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, because, he says take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy. My burden is light. You know why? Because he took on your burden. He took on your burden so you could have his rest. You see that? Now, <clears throat> verse 11 implies something in the future because he says, Now let us therefore make every effort to enter into that rest. Verse 3 says, If you believe, you've entered in. Why do we have to make every effort to enter in then? 
It's because verse 11 is about the future. He says, you who have been redeemed, you who have been rescued, you who have been saved, let's prepare together to enter into the final resting place. That's what this is, this journey. It's all a journey, a spiritual journey towards ultimate rest, the ultimate Canaan. Just like the Israelites, we said that life is like a wilderness. Life is a desert. We're wandering. We are journeying. Let's obey. Follow the word of God. Follow the Lord. Just as God appeared in that fiery cloud guiding the Israelites through the desert, follow the word. Trust in him. Trust in the work of Christ. He is good. He is gracious. He is faithful until we get there. That means you've got to stop justifying yourself. That means you've got to stop working to prove yourself. That means you've got to stop working to cover over yourself. One day, everything, heaven, earth, your bodies, is going to be made new. Everything's going to function as it's been designed, the way it's, fun- it's going to look the way it's supposed to be. It's going to act the way it's supposed to. It's going to, it's going to be the way it's designed to be. And you're all going to be satisfied in Jesus, in the Father, and we're all going to be able to say, it's all very good. We're not there yet. On one hand, if you believe, it's already there. On the other hand, we're headed there, journeying there. Let's do it well together. Let's pray.